0: Welcome to Bridging the Potential, intergenerational conversations that change the world. This is Fahim Dyer, founding member of Living the Potential Network's Youth Advisory Council, with a question for you. What happens when you bridge the experience, education, and expertise of an elder with the curiosity, energy, and innate wisdom of a youth? It's simple, everyone grows and the world changes for the better. One conversation, one connection, one collaboration at a time. Today's podcast is no different. Renee Beth connected me with Cheryl Herrick, who is a lead at home manufacturer Global One Habitats. I think you will enjoy our conversation about the ways we can marry enterprise with conscience and care for our communities. One of my favorite things about this podcast was how Cheryl shared what a guiding light the Deming model is for her, and how that set of managerial principles reaffirmed for me that good ethics also makes for good business.
1: Hello, this is Renee Beth Poindexter, founder of Living the Potential Network and your host for today. I wrote the book, Living the Potential, Engaging the Wisdom of Our Youth to Save the World, when I set out to find ways to create spaces where people could actually hear what the youth have to say. That's what this podcast is all about. I love these conversations. After listening to a youth's concerns and dreams, we connect them with an elder or a mentor who has experience and wisdom to share and who is open to learning and receiving from the innovative spirit of the youth. It's reciprocal learning at its best. I love these conversations. I always leave them so inspired, and I think you will too. Today I have two special guests. I have Cheryl Herrick coming to us from uh, near Raleigh, North Carolina, and Fahim Dyer, who's a recent graduate from Wheaton College, coming to us from Queens, New York. So I want to welcome both of you for being here today and excited to what magic we're going to create. To get started, I'm going to bring up Cheryl Herrick. Cheryl is an amazing businesswoman. She has a business that she's run for quite a few years called PTR Consulting. It's a professional training and consulting company working with executives. She's a total systems thinker and knows how to help companies create systems that supports their efficiency and effectiveness. She's also an entrepreneur that comes from the heart. She's got several projects that she's working on and one that I can't wait to hear more about is called Global One Habitat. So Cheryl, thank you so much for being here today. Let's get started with a little bit of your story. How did you get started with the vision that you're living today?
2: Thanks for having me, Renee Ben being here and getting to be a part of this. Um, so yeah, I'm involved in a couple of things. Uh, I'll start out with the house with the house business, Global One Habitats. And then we can, we can fork off from there to wherever you'd like to go to, if that's OK. Perfect. So Global One Habitats is a new technology house. And we use no nails, no wood. Uh, we do use materials that are conventionally used in construction, but in a very unconventional way. And we view ourselves as widget makers. So I don't consider myself really to be in the construction business or to be in the real estate business. I'm in the manufacturing business. And we have come up with a way to manufacture houses. Once the ramp up is over, we'll be able to manufacture one to three houses per day. Uh, and our-, our whoa, design- whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait a
2: second. One to three houses per
1: day? Yeah, per day. Oh, okay. Right. I just want to
2: make sure we're hearing you right. Yep. One to three houses per day. So that's why I said I don't consider myself to be in the construction business. I consider myself to be in the manufacturing business. Sure. And uh, they look like a conventional stick built house. So it looks like any house in any neighborhood. It does not look like a manufacturer or or modular home in that it's not just one straight line with, you know. It, and it doesn't, have a, it doesn't have a chassis underneath it, which is part of the definition of, of a mobile home is that it has a chassis underneath it. And so there are different designations for different kinds of homes. So we're kind of fitting into a space that is a little bit undesignated right now because we're not really manufactured, we're not really modular, although we are manufacturing the home inside of a facility. But here's where the other half of the story gets interesting. So we'll be able to manufacture these homes one to three per day, but also we're gonna take the manufacturing facility to the development and manufacture them on site at the development, as opposed to manufacturing them in a factory somewhere and having to ship the house to the development. We have a design to actually take the manufacturing because we don't need a ton of space in order to manufacture it, we need a building big enough for a house to move through it, but that's about it, um, because of the technology that we're using. And so we'll be able to pull up job site and spit out houses, because we have to have a large number of houses to go and you can produce one to three houses a day. We can't sell a house onesie twosie. Right. So, we need a, a chunk of we need a uh, we need to work with developers that, that need chunks of houses like 100 houses at a time 500 houses at a time a thousand houses at a time yeah. so we'll pull the manufacturing right up to their build site build the houses and then they'll just get taken down the street inside the development and put on the lot and then the next house will come out and rinse repeat and it's it's something that uh, it's a family business so i'm in business with my father and my cousin larry And so it's the three of us that are the primaries in the business. And I have a long history of working with my family uh, in businesses. Sometimes we work together, sometimes we work separately, but we like to work together.
1: Well, there's something about this Global One Habitat vision. It's like you're doing something that's never been done before. And what problem, you know, I know you're you're addressing some very specific problems that are.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: in our society today, so um, just curious if you could um, tell us what problem are you solving?
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's an affordable housing crisis in our nation, and it's not just here in the United States, but that's where we're starting. And the last stat that I saw was that there was a need for 8.7 million affordable homes. Wow! So that's a lot of people that need a home that don't have access to a home and we want to be able to put people in a home that would not otherwise be able to get into a home because the minute if you start building with wood there's a few things one all the processing that has to happen just in a, it just just in a tree to turn it into wood for a house there's a significant amount of processing that has to go into that so once you start there and then you start with all the conventional methods to build, it's hard for builders and developers to actually make enough money to stay alive building affordable houses. And so it's not that people don't have a desire to do something, but in the current way of building, it's hard for them to actually make a living building affordable houses. And so a different technology had to come into play that could meet the need and where a business could survive. Because in the world that I come from, you had mentioned in the beginning, the systems thinking, you know, thinking about systems and process in viewing everything as a system, part of understanding a business as a system is understanding that it has to take care of everything in the business, including innovation and profit. That is all a part of the system because if a business isn't profitable enough to do innovation, they cannot stay alive. And if a business cannot stay alive, they can't serve their customers, they can't warranty their products and stand behind the thing that they produce. So, the business philosophy that we use is W. Edward Stemming. He was the American statistician that went over and taught Japan how to do business and how to uh, build quality into their products. And so, and then he came back to the United States and taught us. So, <clears throat> So been
1: following this Deming model, the Deming method um, and helped lots and lots of companies through your consulting and coaching and so forth. So yes, and you're pretty much an expert at this and now applying it to a brand new type of business. I don't think anybody else is doing what you're doing, are they?
2: Uh, it's, people are doing components of it, but not in the way that we're doing it. So they're using some of the materials, but not in the way that we're doing it. Uh, For sure. And certainly nobody will be doing it at the rate that we're doing it at. And as far as I know, no one is doing portable manufacturing, where they're pulling up at job site and doing it. So those things are differentiators and disruptors for us. Um, what We are doing and, you know, in, 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 in in Dr. Deming's model, he teaches that our, our first obligation is to stay in business and serve our employees and our customers. So, and he, he literally says that's an obligation of a business. And so we try to look at how can we do something good in the world? Cause part of our family motto is that we don't want to do anything. That's going to hurt the environment or hurt people that that's at the core of everything that we're involved in. So we want to do things that serve that help that don't harm the environment and don't harm people. And so that's a thread that runs through everything that we do. And And I studied with Dr. Deming when he was still alive. He passed away in 1993. Hmm. So I studied with him when he was still alive from 1990 to 1993 when I was in my 20s and I was running a medical device company and I knew enough to know I didn't know. (laughs) Yes, I called my dad and I was like, dad, help me out. And he said, "Okay, sweetheart. Go, go to this guy's uh, seminars, go to the conferences, and learn everything that he has to teach, which is what I did. And so I proceeded to do that until he passed away in 1993. And I've been using his theory since then. And we're using it in our house business because my father is the one that introduced me to it. So he's been using it longer than I have. And you know, he was the one that, that introduced the MRAP vehicles into, into the war so that our military folks could go over into war over in theater and not lose their lives and so it was a it's a capsule that 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 the vehicle might explode but the capsule that the military folks were in would not explode yeah. and uh, yeah so they your they
1: dad t- your dad invented that
2: yeah he they took over the company that was trying to develop the product but the company was going bankrupt and they were not successful at actually being able to deliver a vehicle to the government and so my father took over the company and when he took over the company, I want to say it was, and I'm, I'm not exactly right on the numbers, but I'm close. I want to say it was maybe like a hundred employees, but they were going bankrupt. And five years later, when he left, they had 1800 employees and a hundred million dollars in the bank and a billion dollars in government contracts, <laughs> and they were pumping out hundreds of vehicles a week. Wow. And and it was Dr. Deming's theory. And if you ask him, he will tell you it was using Dr. Deming's theory that allowed them to do it so quickly. Mm-hmm. So Other- you're,
1: you're, you're, a student that learned how to do this because your dad was like your first mentor, but you know, so you say that this is a family business, but it didn't just start with your dad. It was some, how long has this family let's say, uh, what should I, you would call it um, an astute capacity to solve problems in unique disruptive kind of ways that no one else has thought of, you know, it seems like you're, you've got that running through your family. Does that go back even prior to your dad?
2: Oh, yeah, my grandmother, my dad's mother, she was the she was the OG. (laughs) My grandmother was the OG. So my grandmother owned businesses um, back in, I mean, when my father was a child. So back in the, you know, he was born in 40, in the in the early 40s. And so she was owning businesses back then when it wasn't conventional for women to own businesses. Yeah. Right. And she would carry her purse home because she had a bar restaurant type situation. Mm-hmm. And her, hus- her husband had kind of um, removed himself from the family, let's just say. And so she would walk home at night with a gun and all of her money in her purse and just through the streets of Detroit, you know, and she just thought, well, if somebody comes for my money, you know, they're going to have to get through my gun to get out my money. (laughs) And so my grandmother was very, very, uh, she was a crafty little thing. And she had, you know, she was raising five kids by herself. So she had to put a roof over people's heads. And so she was doing, you know, she was doing things way back then. And then, you know, my, I mean, my cousin Larry is the one that actually developed the technology for the houses. So, and he's been working on this concept for 20 years. Wow. When we, when we got hooked up with him a couple of years ago is when the manufacturing part of it came on board, because that's what our sweet spot was. And and Larry had had slowed down his work on it because he realized in order for it to be effective, it was going to need to be manufactured. And that wasn't his sweet spot. He was in construction. He was a building inspector. So he'd worked in the construction world and knew that this needed to be a manufactured product. And that wasn't his sweet spot. And so when he and my dad got hooked back up after all these years as cousins of not being in contact through a mutual friend of ours who races uh, trucks, that's how we got hooked back up with cousin Larry. And so then, you know, it was this circuitous route. And then that's how we got involved in the project. And we first heard about it, we were like, you're doing what? <laughs> we said, well, we'll help you. We're, you. know, And at that time, we weren't actually trying to be a part of the company. We just heard he was trying to do something. We had some skills. We thought we could help him put his own team together to do it. We didn't intend to be the team. We were going to try and help him assess putting together a team and once we got into it with him, he's like, won't you guys just come do this with me? And so ultimately, we decided to get involved. And it's wow. been fun. It's been fun.
1: That's amazing. It's like a mystical connection. that's almost like divinely orchestrated. I love that. Um, I know I want to bring Fahim um, in. Um, but before I do, I want to just mention that you're capacity to collaborate and teach other people how to do that is really um, a unique skill set because everybody talks about critical thinking, systems thinking, collaboration, but people don't do that very well. Um, Could you speak a little bit about that and then the distinction of how you do that with family because that in itself is a skill set that a lot of people don't have. They might be excellent collaborators in the workplace but that's so good with family. So those two things I'd like to ask you
2: about before we bring Fahim on. Uh, Sure, It's really it's the methods that we use that allow us to be collaborative. And um, so using Dr. Deming's theory, and then we have a proprietary software of our own that lets us deploy the theory. And the other half of it is um, in order to be a leader in lead companies the way that we do, you have to be okay. Um, You have to be okay developing people and helping people and kind of really um, more being of service to them than really, um, it's a leadership thing, it's not a boss thing. And I think most people know the difference between a leader and a boss. And a leader will be out front to take the bullets but then they'll be behind the scenes helping, supporting, educating, and developing. And we very specifically put all of our people through 80 hours of Deming training. And it doesn't matter where in the organization their job is or their skill set is, everybody gets 80 hours of C suite training. So everybody knows everything about the business. And we don't keep secrets in the business. So they can know about the financials, they can know about any job in the company they can know we you know we set things up as pay bands so there is no secrecy around who how people get paid everybody knows there's five, you know three four five pay bands and everybody's making something in those pay bands and that's it and we are really trying for 100% turnover because what we really want is for people to go and either start their own business and then be a supplier to us perfect world they'd start their own business and something that's a supplier to us so we know we talk the same language or they just go start a business that they're passionate about that we can cheer them on about. That's what we want. And because everything is documented, there's no risk to us for people succeeding and going on to do something for themselves because all of that information is documented in the business and they've helped us get all that documented as a part of the way that we run the business. So there's no risk to us. So why wouldn't we want people to go out and achieve their dreams? amazing
1: and you have some interesting hiring practices <laughs> um, maybe you can i think maybe Fahim will probably want to ask you about that okay i'm going to bring Fahim in Fahim Dyer um, really excited to have you Fahim here with the mentor you chose Cheryl Herrick from the global one habitat and Fahim Dyer is coming to us from Queens New York um, Fahim, tell us a little bit about you and what you're up to these days, and then we'll get into some questions that you might have for Cheryl.
0: Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm Fahim. I, um, I, uh, as, as mentioned, I'm a recent college graduate. Um, I went to Wheaton College in Massachusetts. Um, I studied, uh, the, uh, studied American history and literature there. Um, and before that, I have uh, I have some roots uh, in Maryland, um, Boston, New York, um, from all over. Um, Renee, you and I, we know each other uh, through my parents, um, who uh, I think are interesting people, and who I think have helped guide me a lot. And, and obviously, they're my parents, but also um, the, the 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 way that they parented and the kind of people that they are. I think um, I've always been. Really um, encouraged to look at, at the world we live in in a in a, a sort of a macro sense, right? Um, and um, follow my passions all the way all the way up, you know, into the way that everything connects to the greater ecosystem.
1: And you know and, what? How you do that? Maybe because I noticed that you were had leadership positions when you were in both high school and college, but also and some of the leadership that you wanted to bring to the city of Baltimore and other places that you've lived. I mean, you've been active in social causes. So sure. cool to say a little bit about that.
0: So um, for, my, for high school, I was uh, with my family in uh, the Baltimore, Maryland area. And uh, my high school years happened to coincide with a lot of social unrest around um, poverty and around um, police, policing in our communities. Uh, the Freddie Gray, uh, all that, uh, the, the, the Freddie Gray incident happened uh, the summer of my senior year of high school. And uh, my parents obviously being so close and so concerned with you know the community they were living in, took a, a really uh, close attention to what was going on. And formed a, a group around conversation in the aftermath creating a profound sense of community. It was about um, having people sit down and, and, and talk out their issues and get to the, the roots of their own hurt and their own trauma and their own experiences and square them with others um, to see the, because they believe that was the way forward. And that was the way to, you know have actually constructive outcomes. Um, communication I think is a clear uh, guided um, constructive communication, uh, was to them the key. And I got to see a lot of that. And I also got to see a lot of different parts of the city of Baltimore and the way things worked, you know, those conversations and those people I met, there's everyone from police, um, police officials to community organizers, uh, social workers, things like that, educators. Um, and then later, uh, as I was sort of moving into the professional world, uh, parallel with college, I did work in the city of Baltimore, working to get different um, resident owned and minority owned businesses uh, funding and working uh, through impact investing. And that was, again, another great series of exposures to the community that I was living in and uh, to my people in a way that I think was really helpful. And at every step of the way, there was always you know, this, uh, this necessity to think about the way that I and my peers and everyone that I knew, my family, my neighbors, we all fit into the system as it functioned. And is this function occurring properly? Or how could it be improved? And how do we as individuals and as collectives um move it in a better direction if it's not Um, and that's something that I also pursued in my school work I was part of um a student policy group called the Roosevelt Institute that did a lot of writing in the in the grand sense you know writing about policy top-down kind of things like that and exploring lobbying and other stuff that wasn't so wasn't so uh compelling um
1: Right, but all part of the system in a way. In other words, if you're gonna bring about social change, you've had exposure to many different systems and that's led you to, um, you know, have a wide range of understanding at such a young age. How old are you now? I'm
0: 23 now.
1: Yeah, 23. So um, now you've moved to New York and you are probably seeing a whole new set of issues and opportunities there right in the middle of a pandemic. So, and it's in the real estate arena and how does that connect to what you, you know, what maybe your interests, uh, you know, people and solving problems and, you know, New York is New York. There's no place like it. (laughs) So what are you learning and how does uh, maybe have a question? I have an idea that you might want to be asking Cheryl, or we can start this exchange because you have so much wisdom for such a young man. And Cheryl has, um, wisdom as well, but I think the two of you and your interest of serving humanity for highest and best for the common good is so in sync with each other. So what is it about New York? Is there anything that you're learning there that adds to your, uh, multidimensional view of life and living?
0: Um, well, well for one thing, uh, I'm learning how to work with family. You know, I work with, um, several members of my family um, and yeah and I'm learning a lot about the different facets of the real estate business um, and the ways that all of those facets again connect to greater organisms uh, and as many answers as I get questions arise and I'm always I'm always always going I'd say in my current setting um as far as uh, questions for you, Cheryl, um, it seems like you're important. Like Renee, like you said, the something that's important to both of us is common good and um, enriching communities. I was just wondering if you ever, in doing your work, you've uh, had to make decisions that you think were um, maybe maybe worked against you think the, the greater interests, uh, or if, if you haven't, have you avoided that?
2: Uh, it's a great question, Fahim. And I just wanna throw my question out there now, so you'll know to what I'm what I'm gonna be driving towards because uh, impact investing is something I hear a lot of people talk about. And I would love for you to fill me in a little bit on what you guys did relative to that in Baltimore. Cool. I am not very well versed in that. And so as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, I got to ask him about that. So I would love to circle back around to that if we could. Absolutely. Um, and in terms of the greater good. So I, I can actually think of a very specific example of something that happened in the last company that we worked in uh, together. My father and I, my brother worked at that company as well. Um, And we did automotive, uh, we did specialty automotive things. Um, And and so we used Deming's theory at that company and part of his theory is that you have an aim. A lot of people have a, a vision statement or a mission statement, something like that. In Deming's language, it's an aim and it's very short, a sentence long, that's it. That defines everything about what you're trying to do in general in that business. And, um, and so we had um, one of our, our uh, folks that was working with us in sales come to us with a customer that um, we would put, um, we would put um, treatments on automotive components. But there was uh, somebody who was working with us um, a little bit in outside sales. And he came to us and said that there was a customer that wanted us to take things off of components, not put things on, because our whole thing was to improve people's products but this customer wanted us to just come and take things off of those components and then they were gonna send them somewhere else to have them improved. (laughs) Because our model was to run a model company and model means that we use Deming's theory and that we do nothing to harm people or the environment. And so when he came and talked to me about it, we had a discussion about it because I said, well, if I think about what our aim is, it's about being a model company. There are some other things, but I won't, but the, the main components that we talked about was part of our aim was to be a model company, which means that products, no harm, um, and also that we improve products. And so if we just look at what that customer is asking for, they're not asking for us to make an improvement. They're asking for us to take value away from their product and that let somebody else improve it Second, in order to take that value away from that product for them, we were gonna to have to deal with hazardous waste. So it's was gonna be harmful to people and to the environment. And so while he was excited, understandably so, cause it would have been a very big sale and it would have been good for the company and it would have been good for him, right? Um, but because we have a specific way that we run the company and we have that aim, I had a lens that I could have the discussion with him and say, well, it doesn't fit into this or this or this. Therefore we will forego making that money because it doesn't fit inside our corporate ethos of who we are and it doesn't meet our aim as a company. And so for, for me, it, and people have asked me, was that a hard decision because you were letting money go. But for me, because I knew what our aim was in the company, it gave me real absolute clarity about how to make the decision. So there wasn't confusion for me. And it actually wasn't hard, because I knew the components of our aim. So I knew how to look at it and how to deconstruct that question from that person. And what would be in the best interest of us overall, because I didn't want to put the the people that work there in jeopardy by having to deal with hazardous waste. And I certainly didn't want to put that into the you know into the environment i didn't want to cause environmental harm and so for me using those tools that we use it makes it easier for me to stay out of quagmires so to speak because i know it's directing my decision making. if that makes any sense
0: sure so you'd say the, the the demings model is um has steered you out of a, a lot of kind of sticky yeah. situations to things that it could have become like it's like helped you avoid negative outcomes, like company-wise, business-wise as well?
2: Yeah, oh, sh- certainly, certainly. Because of the way that we deploy it, it helps make things visible so we can see things that we're doing that would be not value-added activities inside of the company. So yeah, it absolutely does. It's You're very perceptive to pick up on that. Yeah, that's a it's a great question. And yes, it absolutely does, So. Now I want to flip the table on you because I want to talk about impact investing, if that's okay with Renee Beth, if I switch gears on no, I'm
1: Sure, I just want to make sure there's probably a back and forth on this because there's a lot of um, wisdom here brewing and it's a recipe you two are concocting. I'm here just to celebrate in the feast with you.
2: <laughs> I want to learn about impact investing. So I want you to teach me, my friend.
0: Sure. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm am an expert on the practice. You know, I was uh, <laughs> wasn't high up, and I was, it was the the group I was with was definitely coming at it from an interesting angle, a pretty unique um, a unique attack on it. Um, but uh, basically, the group I was with invested impact in, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, it was sort of half uh, nonprofit and half. Um, Business and management and stuff like that. Um, but the goal was to take philanthropic money, money from foundations and nonprofits, and allow it to be geared towards enterprises that could generate profit. Um, and all those enterprises were supposed to be enterprises that were based in the city of Baltimore, Black owned, you know, generate. Um, Income and capital for communities that don't have a lot of it. Uh, And the the pitch to foundations was um, you can, the the idea was you can go to foundations instead of, you know, the typical investor set um, because this is, um, these are projects that are in underserved areas and underserved communities. And the pitch to foundations was this is more lucrative for you guys because you're unlocking there's some ratio i forget what the exact ratio was but it's something uh, where foundations legally only a certain amount of their contributions can be towards things that will generate further profit and uh, the pitch to foundations was all of your money can now go to things that will generate a further profit because they're going to underserved people and they're going to create um businesses that will turn that are meant to turn profits and that are meant to um, generate income, but they're also up in the process, ideally uplifting communities and um, things like that. So it was a lot of um, relationship building in the city um, across all kinds of lines. Uh, and I was doing a lot of um, blogging for them and you know, intern type things.
1: I love writing about it. You were you were putting your writing skills to work, right? Yes.
0: Doing that's a lot of writing.
1: Right.
2: Oh, that's great. I love the idea of of that, that it's a way for the foundations to get involved in something that allows them to actually make an impact. Obviously, the name <laughs> impact is right? So they get to make an impact in a community that you know that deserves the opportunity to do something different.
0: Right. And I think, at least in theory, it's um, an impact in a way that would be more lasting than just a a donation, right? Because these are institutions that will stay after the original money has been put in and they'll generate ideally jobs, homes, income of all kinds. Um, And so that was really interesting to me is that this is um, taking these two worlds and the way that they normally do things and their own, using their own functionalities in new ways um, to better ends. Uh, I think it would have been if it hadn't um, hadn't disbanded.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, there was issues. I mean, there's so much good that's starting to happen and problem, new problems that are emerging in our society that we're gonna require these types of collaborations. And, you know, when Cheryl, you were talking about how you're actually so transparent with all your employees and you're hiring specific people that other people probably wouldn't hire. I mean, this is another issue. I think that relates to kind of that will resonate with you Fahim. If Cheryl could talk a little bit about that, because she's solving, if we really made a list of all the problems that she's solving, and then you think about all that, the issues that you were solving in Baltimore and that you would like to solve in the world. There's like a list of them that have to do with people and place and profit. You know, they call it the quadruple bottom line for these new B corporations that are starting to come into the play. It's about people, planet, purpose, and profit. And it's not all about profit first, which is, you know, a lot of people are have issues with capitalistic people who put profit above and beyond all else. But that's not the Deming model. (laughs) It's about do well, do good, give back, do no harm, and take care of the people in the community along the way. And I think, Cheryl, your company um, Global One Impact is um, a Global One Habitat, excuse me it's making an impact, (laughs) there's another slogan there that you could add, It's doing exactly that. And there may be some additional questions that Fahim will have as you talk a little bit more about who are you hiring and what problem is that solving as you're trying to make, have 100% turnover where these people actually have jobs as a result of this new industry that you're creating.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's a great question. So Dr. Deming talks about, you know, the, the best aim of all is when everybody wins. And so our, you know, part of what we're trying to do when we talk about being a model company is that we want to increase the standard of living of everyone. And part of how you do that is by giving people a chance, giving people a job and giving them a chance when nobody else will. And so um, we, we talk a lot about this. My father talked talk a lot about this, that people come out of the criminal justice system and everybody tells them to get their act together, but then nobody will give them a job. So how are they going to get their act together if nobody will give them a job? Because they have a record. And if they have a record, nobody will give them a job. So it's, this, it's a cycle that prevents people from actually being able to have agency to make the changes that they would choose to make. And... So our, our hiring practice at, um, and, and right now we're still on the ramp up at Global One, but this is how we were going to do it here. It's how we've done it at other places, is that um, we um, are happy to hire people. And at the last company, the majority of our workforce was people that came through the criminal justice system. And the only thing that we ask is that they tell us the truth. Just tell us the truth, whatever's in your background, Um, unless someone is a danger to the rest of the team, in which case we can't bring them on because everyone is entitled to a clean, safe, respectful work environment. So if someone is in a place where they're still a danger to the people around them, that's a cutoff for us, but anything else, bring whatever it is, it's fine with us, just tell us the truth in the beginning. And if you're willing to work and you're willing to learn and you're willing to be a part of a team, You have a place with us and that's been a very successful so if it's a senior citizen who has for a lot of people aged out and people won't hire them if it's a veteran that has ptsd or other wounds of war come on in we'll take you if it's somebody that's been inside the criminal justice system and they're trying to you know get a job somewhere and for a lot of them right it's it's a part of their it's a part of what is required of them once they're released is they have to have a job. And so it's a difficult circumstance to be in if somebody has to have a job and then they can't get a job. And so we're, we just wanna do our part to play a part in allowing people to have agency to create a new future for themselves. And so the when I was saying that we send people through you know, all of this training, it's everybody. All, everybody that comes in the door, because they're entitled to that level of training. Why wouldn't we want everyone to have that level of training? I've been fortunate to have that level of training. Why wouldn't I want everyone to have it? And um, and so if you, it, my experience has been that if we treat people with respect and give them every opportunity to succeed, far more often than not, they will prove you right. And they will succeed. It is the exception not the rule that people won't. And so I I don't buy into any of this business about, you know, you can't find good help these days and you can't that, hooey it's just hooey. I don't subscribe to it. I don't agree with it. It's just not been my experience. So I believe that maybe some people have that experience, but I would ask them, how are you running your business? Is it a place people want to come to work at? So- yeah, so th- that's the way that we're approaching it in in what we're doing because we just want everyone to have a chance and then it's up to them to make something of the chance, but we're gonna give every opportunity that we can, so.
0: Right, and it's, it's your experience that it's the uh, the rule rather than the exception that people with those opportunities can find some success?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's, it's definitely, so... Uh, he, I'll give you an example. We, we went through this thing in that company. Some, a person stole from the company. A single person stole from the company. And so everybody got up in arms about how we had to do all these things now because somebody stole. And I said, hold on a second. We have 100 employees here. 100 employees. 99 people did not steal, one person stole. I'm going to punish 99 people for the actions of person that's not going to happen. No, no, not doing that. We're not going to change everything about our business. And by the way, it wasn't somebody that came to us through the criminal justice system that stole. Just so I wanted to be really clear. The person who stole was not someone who came to us through the criminal justice system. So, other people in the company got really indignant about things, but you know what people, it's an interesting thing. People talk and people sometimes do things don't, you know, they, they can't help, but like speak about it. And so it, it ends up coming out in the wash and it came out in the wash who did it and why they did it. And it wasn't somebody who had come to us, you know, through that had had, you know, past experience with, you know, having had a difficult circumstance. And so you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't willing to take an action against everyone for something that one person did. It's just not fair. And I just have had, we've had way more success um, with trusting people than we have, than, than I, I wouldn't change the way that we do it. Yes, people are gonna take advantage, but if you don't trust people, they're still gonna take advantage. Mm-hmm. So treating people well or not treating them well the people that are gonna take advantage, they're just gonna do it. And I would rather be working inside of a company where we got along and collaborated and we trusted each other.
0: And so what would, um, what would Dr. Deming's model, uh, if you're going by the book, um, dictate that you do in a situation where the employees are saying we need to you know we need to do this. I don't know what the specifics were, but like surveillance or something like that, because somebody stole. and now to prevent future infractions, we need to implement some other kind of uh, something punitive.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, i don't I don't know that Deming, I can't recall that I specifically read anything in Deming's book about it, but Deming would always ask you what is happening in the system? What is happening inside of the system of your business, um, and was there something going on in the system of the business that, that created that circumstance, or was it just an individual taking an action? Because Dr. Deming says that there's two methods that things happen, either by special cause or common cause. If you have 100 people and one person's skills, that's a special cause. That's not happening every day. You don't, you don't rearrange everything about your business for a special cause. So, you know, you eradicated if you need to, you know, you, like that person exited the company, obviously we didn't continue to employ them. Um, but other than that, we did not change anything else about what we were doing. We just asked that person to leave. But that, that was it because that's all that needed to happen. That's the only thing that needed to happen because everything else remained the same. And you know, I would be curious, like, with your experience and and you know, I, I know you were talking a lot about this, you know, the the program that you guys were doing in Baltimore, and I wonder how um, how those conversations, because like I'm thinking about like some of the conversations we had internally, some of which I don't think it's appropriate for me to not necessarily talk about, but. Um, how the primary conversations were um, that for the most part, people wanted to still be supportive of their teammates and people didn't want to rush to judgment and they didn't want to rush to um, accusing people or name calling or things like that. There was a small number of people that maybe wanted to do that, but the majority did not want to do that. And so I'm curious about like how the conversations went when you all were, were, having like you were saying with you and your parents you guys were having conversations to i'm probably not going to word this the way that i, I don't know how to word this right but to, to further understanding so that you mm-hmm. can create more understanding amongst people and so did you find that people were far more willing to search for understanding than they were to point fingers at each other because that that was our experience so I would be curious what that was like for you guys when you were having those conversations
0: I think it was always a, a push and pull you know especially when it's um, larger groups there's always the impulse to sort of you know go into 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 combat mode especially with something as charged as you know we're being patrolled and surveilled and yeah. attacked and all of that. Um, and uh, that's part of why they, I think they needed um, what they, uh, what the purpose of the group was is that the, the first reaction in that situation on both sides is going to be to put the walls up and to go on guard and to be, um, to be ready to, to fight for, for your, you know, your, your corner. Um, and it takes a little bit of coaxing and a little bit of um, explaining. And a little bit of mediating from a neutral party. I remember the the flag uh, the flagship uh, events that uh, capsaw creating a of community did, were these large like town hall discussions where they'd have community members um, from all different corners of the community come and attend and talk. Um, I think. Uh, a key part of the format of those, though, was that there was um, Jean Lloyd. She was um, a mediator and an instructor and a uh, a professional conversation facilitator. She had the mic and she was, you know, passing it back and forth and sort of had control of the room. Uh, and so I think the neutral parties helped a lot of uh, helped a lot with the the unwinding of the, the tension and the course correction when things got too um to, you know, too much of the blinders up.
2: Yeah, yeah, you guys were already coming from a place where you hadn't had enough opportunity to build a relationship. And I think that's probably the, the thing that we had working in our favor is that we start really early on working very diligently to understand people, to build relationships, to, to give people education and to start the collaboration as soon as possible when people get onboarded so that they understand the context with which we're working around each other. Sure. So I, I think we had that benefit um, of that. And I, I think you, you know, certainly you all were in a much more difficult circumstance to bring some resolution. And I'm, I'm really impressed that you guys were able to have those conversations and have somebody in there to come mediate
0: it. Like, that's
2: incredible. That's- I
0: don't um, uh, oh, oh, Sorry. No, 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 go ahead.
2: No, no, go ahead.
0: I was honestly surprised too that those conversations went as well as they did, you know, given you got, you know, like, you've got the police and the Nation of Islam in the same room and people are, you know, having a civil discussion. Um, I think maybe also uh, there's more incentive to work together to collaborate when you're talking about like internally inside of a business versus, you know, um, just a neighborhood with all these different institutions in it um, that maybe have different interests and things like that. Uh, I I think a a lot about um, the business I'm in now, real estate, um, where the the we're across a lot of different kinds of asset classes, but um, one of them is residential uh, managing apartment buildings. And um, there's a, there's a little bit of a, a different incentive there too. You know, your, our business is being landlords, right. And, you know, the customers are tenants. Um, I was just thinking about um Recently, uh, during the pandemic, there was was this program, I think, that the city introduced to provide rental assistance to people experiencing um, housing insecurity. And so a lot of uh, empty apartment buildings, the city just started paying the rent for people who were on the streets to come live there. And uh, one of our buildings has been a, a participant in that program. And so we have, you know, formerly unhoused people coming in and uh, i just uh, i always i was thinking about and what you were talking about how to avoid friction and what are what are the incentives for already existing tenants and new tenants um how do we mediate in that situation and it's proving hard especially as a landlord i don't think you're always seen as a neutral party mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, is, is, there, a, is there some wisdom the Deming model could provide there?
2: Um, you know, when you started talking about the, um, the landlord versus tenant, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that um, I think sometimes people don't think about what a symbiotic relationship that is, right? Because it's very mm-hmm. interdependent because the, the landlord has this asset which is this piece of real estate. And so they want their asset to stay in good shape. And then the renters are living there, but they don't own it. But here's this thing that they don't own, but they have the opportunity to take pride of ownership of where they live, if they choose to. And so it's it's a it's a fascinating idea. And we're actually working on some projects where it is going to be ultimately starting out as developments where they're going to be rental properties. Um And then, you know, eventually people will be able to take ownership of them. And so it'll be interesting to see how that collaboration happens because there there is a lot of, uh a, you know, th- there's just a lot of interdependency. And so, you know, for me when I'm looking at things I'm always looking at it systemically so I would be trying to as the landlord I would be trying to understand like what is it that the residents of the building really want like what are the what are the important things to them what is it that they're wanting there and if I were living there what would I be wanting there how are we how are we doing that are there ways where we could do better at that um you know, are there unmet needs that people have that we as the landlord could be taking a look at for ourselves? Because I guess I, would, I, I actually not sure I would look at it that much different than being the people inside of an organization, which is that we always feel like if we take care of the team, the team will take care of the customers. And so our job is to take care of the team. And so if if the landlords kind of view their tenants as the team, if they take care of the team, which is the tenants, then the tenants will take care of the structure. I mean, obviously not necessarily paying for everything out of their own pocket, but you know what I mean? It's like, it it gives them like more pride of, of ownership and like, oh, well, this is a, you know, it's a positive experience. And I'm guessing you guys are already doing that, but I would always be looking for any way where are there opportunities for us to do something better over here or something better over there? Is there some way for us to make some improvement that would have an impact for the people that are there? Um, and you know, or if and me I'm always looking at if we have a bunch of people on the team that are making the same complaint, then something has gone awry in our system and we need to take a look at it. Like if everybody's complaining about the same thing then we have a problem in a process somewhere we need to fix. So that's, I think that's where I would start looking is if if there are particular things that are routinely complained about by a lot of people, there's a, there's a breakdown somewhere. And so I would start there because that's a, you know, that's a, that's a high volume thing. And if you start to address the high volume things and you can get on to the more nuanced things, that's my just thinking off the top of my head without being in that segment of business that if, If it were me, I think that's where I would start.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually.
1: That's perfect. Well, you know, today's conversation, I want to thank my guests today, Cheryl Herrick from uh, North Carolina and Fahim Dyer from New York. And um, it's just been a jam-packed conversation with so much wisdom. I wonder what you're each taking away from this conversation. How is it affirmed or enlightened or empowered you. Um, I think I'll ask you, Cheryl, it sounds like you, you've got some wisdom from Fahim today. What would you like to share as some of your takeaways?
2: Oh, well, first off, I'd like to thank Fahim for his time, because I know he's very busy. I appreciate you sitting and chatting with me today. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm now you have motivated me now to go out and learn much more about impact investing. So thank you for the in the minute you said that, I was like, oh, "Okay, I want to learn about this for sure." Um, and um, and also, I I just I'm always moved by people that have a heart for doing something good in the world. And everything that you talked about in your story is, in some way, represented you caring about other people and that caring nature of shown through in every different story that you talked about and that is very inspiring to me it is very inspiring to me so when you know when people talk about you know the next generation see you are uh, what you are the kind of people that i experience so it's hard for me to relate when people you know people have a different experience because you are what I experience 99% of the time. And I love that there's care with everything that you're involved in. And that gives me encouragement for the future of our country. Very much so. Wow. So Fahim, take that in.
1: <laughs> yeah, take it in. And really, what, what are some takeaways that you've gotten from Cheryl Herrick today?
0: Sure, I think... Um there are some management points that I think were really insightful that I need to, I need to internalize for sure. Um, I think there's also in your comments just now, there's uh again, they're for one very kind and I appreciate them. And also there's some insight in ways that I had always sort of thought about, but never really had distilled in quite that way. So thank you. Um, yeah, there's a, I have some notes here. I think the, the the clarity that you get from doing what is uh, ethical and the, and the ways that that will come back to not bite you. Um, I think that's some an important thing to remember. Um, things like that, I just, I'm, I didn't realize the time was up actually.
1: <laughs> I know, time goes by really, really fast. I'm well, let me tell you what I, I've gotten from both of you today is, um, first of all, my commitment for intergenerational conversations that matter. Um, I've learned, um, I've, you know, Deming I'm familiar with, um, but it's really reinforced for me how important that is. Systems thinking right now in our society, so many uh, changes are happening. Systems are being dismantled and new opportunities are emerging. And I'm so impressed with Cheryl Herrick's company, you know, and this vision to make um, affordable housing uh, happen, and from a manufactured standpoint, and to do it on site. It's like, and to be able to hire people on site, and you know, offer jobs to people so they can learn something that they can absolutely perhaps become part of the duplication process for new systems for affordable housing. Woo! that's a whole lot, you know, I just love it. I love that it's a family business. I love that your grandmother, you know, had the grit that it's certainly been come right through your DNA. But I also appreciate the respect and honor that you gave Fahim and listening to his insight on impact investing. And Fahim, I'm so impressed with your um, interest in making a difference in the lives of people. And your perspective of, you know, from graduating from college and the exposure you've had for social justice issues, and how you've been able to bring your head and your heart to the solving of those problems with people. Because this is not information you can learn in a textbook, (laughs) you only can learn it by being in it and with it. And you both are so courageous to engage with your personal passion and purpose in the spirit of business, because a lot of people don't know how to do that either. So for the listeners, you just heard some social change agents who have business acumen, who are teaching people how to work together with systems and tools to make the world a better place. I wanna thank our listeners for tuning in today. I don't know about you, but I'm leaving inspired and looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Renée Beth.
0: I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and will join us for the next Bridging the Potential podcast. If you're interested in what we are doing here at Living the Potential Network, please visit our website, www.livingthepotential.com and check out the first two chapters of Renée Beth's book, Living the Potential, engaging the wisdom of our youth to save the world. Till next time.